Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. The hearing today is to consider nominations for five individuals to a wide range of posts. I look forward to discussing the wide ranges of challenges and opportunities that our nominees expect to face if confirmed. I want to thank each of you uh, for your dedication to public service, for your families, for the support you've got. Welcome your families today and friends who are present here today. I've met a few of them. Um, Today, I'd like to introduce our nominee, uh, nominees. Uh, we'll do that first, and then we'll, we'll proceed to questions after uh, a statement from the ranking member. Uh, first, we have Ms. Ann Cal Calvarese-Barr Calvarese of Maryland to be Inspector General, United States Agency for International Development. Welcome, Ms. Barr. Mr. David Malcolm Robinson uh, of Connecticut, a career member of the Senior Foreign Service, class of uh, Minister Counselor to be Assistant Secretary of State, Conflict of Stabilization Operations, and Coordinator for Reconstruction and St uh, Stabilization. Mr. Edward Richard Nolan, Jr. of Massachusetts, a career member of the Senior Foreign Service, Class of Minister Counselor to be Ambassador Extraordinary and Plenipotentiary of the United States of America to the Republic of Suriname. John L. Estrada of Florida to be Ambassador Extraordinary and plenipotentiary of the United States of America of the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago. Mr. Scott Allen, uh, to be director of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Several of you <clears throat> have spent many years dedicated in service to our country already, and for that we're sincerely thankful. I look forward to hearing your testimony today, but I'd like to add a personal note. I've made a couple of trips outside the U.S. I've met many of your compatriots <clears throat> uh, in the State Department. And I can tell the people of America that the best of the best represent us abroad. And I want to thank each of you and the people you represent for what you do. Well, that I'll turn it over to a ranking member, Senator Kane. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair. And that was a, a gracious comment. And I'm going to continue in that, in that way. Um, I think we have a bipartisan appreciation on this committee that the work that you do is very important and that you do it under difficult circumstances. And often you do it without the understanding and sadly even the appreciation that we ought to extend to you. Uh, I think one of the lessons that America learned from the Vietnam era is whatever our political feelings about any particular military conflict, we should express our thanks and appreciation of those who serve in uniform. And I think we've gotten better at that and I thank God for that. But we have a whole lot of people who serve not in military uniform but still representing the United States, whether they be State Department or USAID or DEA agents who work overseas. We have a lot of folks who are kind of small A ambassadors working overseas who represent the United States every day, often in dangerous places, often sent uh, to uh, places that they didn't choose and often sent without their families if the places are particularly dangerous. And I have also, as a member of this committee and the Armed Services Committee in my travels, had a chance to interact with a lot of the folks you will be, that you already are working with and that you will be working with. You've got fantastic colleagues. Those of you who are going to be uh, ambassadors have that care on your shoulder of protecting the safety of the public servants who work for you. And uh, I congratulate you for being nominated, but also just uh, tell you that my sense is the same as Senator Perdue's, that the people you'll be working with are really top-notch, and we owe you and them a great deal of thanks. Quickly about the nominees, Ms. Barr, your experience at GAO and as Deputy Inspector General at the U.S. DOT will be very, very valuable if you are confirmed in this position as the Inspector General for USAID. It's an important agency. We care deeply about the mission. The role of the IG is very important to the uh, USAID being successful. 
um, Ambassador Robinson as a career member of Foreign Service. Your current tenure is the Principal Deputy High Representative of the International Community in Bosnia-Herzegovina and other roles will undoubtedly benefit you uh, in the position you've been nominated for as Assist Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations. Mr. Allen, your 20 years of work in the financial sector uh, will be a great match as you go to take on the task of, a, of an institution that's, whose mission's probably gotten a little more complicated than it's been the U.S. Director of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and we've been following the situation in Europe closely, and I know you'll have interesting insights for us on that. Uh, Mr. Nolan, you're also a career Foreign Service member. You currently serve as Minister of Political Affairs at the U.S. Embassy Ottawa, and you previously served in The Hague. 34 years of combined service will serve you well as the U.S. Ambassador in Suriname. And then, Mr. Estrada, I can't resist, as the father of a Marine, to give you a shout-out for your strong service, 34 years of service in the Marine, and really the achievement of the, it's got to be the top job in the Marine Corps, even over Commandant, Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps, the highest-ranking enlisted Marine. What a, what a wonderful track record, and I know you'll bring that to your position of the Ambassador the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago. Everywhere I travel, I always stick my head in post one at every embassy to thank the Marine security guards who are trained at Quantico in Virginia, and I know you've interacted with them, and, and they will be new family in this new role. So I appreciate uh, your service. I applaud you for your nomination, and Mr. Chair, I look forward to the questions. Thank you. Um, now we'll open it up to questions, and um, I'd like to give each, oh, I'm sorry. Yes, we'll do testimony first, but I, I jumped ahead. I want, when we do the, uh, I'm anxious to get these questions. He, he uh, loved, man, he is tough. I mean, he <laughs> wants to get to the cross-examination, so you guys better hunker down over there. What I, what I was going to do, though, actually, is give you the privilege of introducing your family and guests, each of you, and I'll ask you to do that uh, as you um, give your statements. Up first is our nominee to become the Inspector General of USAID, Ms. Calvarese Barr. She's currently the Deputy Inspector General at the Department of Transportation. Ms. Calvarese Barr. Thank you, Chairman Perdue and Ranking Member Kane. It's a great honor to be here today as the President's nominee for Inspector General of the United States Agency for International Development. If confirmed, I look forward to working with you on important oversight and accountability matters related to U.S. foreign assistance. Before I begin, I'd like to recognize my husband, David, who is in Iraq on a State Department detail, my daughter, Juliana, who completed her second year at Dickinson College and will soon begin a year of study in Italy, my mother, Julia, my late father, Anthony, my siblings, Kathleen, Dominic, and Anthony, my mother-in-law, nieces, and nephews, and other members of my sizable Italian family. <laughs> Together, they have instilled in me strong ethical and moral values and taught me that hard work, dedication, and humility are the foundation to building resilient relationships and mutual respect. As you can see, I'm surrounded by much love and support. I've served in the government accountability community for more than three decades. My civil service career includes 25 years at the Government Accountability Office and six years at the DOT's Office of Inspector General. GAO served as a critical training ground for me, and I had the privilege to work with many role models, including three outstanding Comptrollers General. During my time at GAO, I worked in multiple offices, including five years in GAO's former European office, leading audits of large-scale cross-cutting programs that resulted in improved operations and significant cost savings across government. Particularly gratifying and fulfilling was work I performed while stationed overseas, work that concerned national security interests, international development efforts, 
and the state of human rights conditions in countries throughout Africa and the Middle East. My GAO experience prepared me well for working alongside DOT's Inspector General Calvin Scoble, whose exceptional leadership I respect very, very much and I've learned from and is recognized across the OIG community. And I must tell you, he surprised me today and he is here with me and I couldn't be happier about that. Thank you, Cal. Within my first weeks as Assistant Inspector General for Audit and Evaluation, I led the development of a comprehensive strategy for mitigating risks in DOT's oversight of the $48 billion in transportation projects funded under the Recovery Act. Our strategy enabled us to quickly identify and, and inform the Department of vulnerabilities that required immediate attention or a sustained focus before funds were further obligated or expended. I also collaborated with senior managers to institute new policies and streamline procedures that enhanced product quality and accountability for issuing timely and relevant audit reports. After my first year at DOT, the Inspector General selected me as his deputy. In this role, I identified opportunities for greater synergies among OIG's audit, investigation, and operational support activities, as well as programs to further develop and motivate staff. I also personally sponsored many initiatives aimed at broadening perspectives and encouraging greater coordination and partnering. Our returns on investment and employee survey scores demonstrate the success we have had in cultivating a skilled and high-performing workforce and in achieving results. Over the past five years, we've averaged a return of $26 for every dollar appropriated and seen remarkable improvements in our employee viewpoint survey scores. Of particular note, we ranked first in effective leadership, support for diversity, and innovation across the OIG community. If confirmed, I would approach this new responsibility with a clear understanding that foreign assistance is an integral part of U.S. engagement with an increasingly interdependent world and that the success of AIDS mission depends in large part on effective partnerships with state and defense, other federal entities, industry, foreign governments, international donors, and the academic and scientific communities. The independent work of USAID OIG is critical to ensuring transparency and accountability at USAID as well as at the four other entities I would have oversight responsibility for. I would continue to model the highest standards of leadership. Effective leaders marshal rather than direct, and I welcome the opportunity to marshal the dedicated professionals at AID OIG. I would work to ensure they have the tools needed to combat fraud, waste, and abuse. Despite the many challenges these professionals face, they remain resolved to carry out their important audit and investigative mission around the globe. Nothing short of a work environment characterized by integrity is acceptable to support their dedication. Aid reflects the goodwill of the American people. And while working in areas affected by poverty, conflict, and instability, I saw firsthand how effective foreign assistance programs can help transform lives and unlock human potential. I remain passionate about that cause and to that end, to helping ensure that every dollar spent furthers foreign assistance goals. If confirmed, I look forward to working with Congress to address your areas of concern, ensure transparency, and com provide complete, timely, and accurate information on the progress of key foreign assistance priorities. Thank you very much for this opportunity to appear before you today, and I'm happy to answer any questions you may have. Thank you very much. Ambassador Robinson currently serves as Principal Deputy High Representative at Sarajevo, Bosnia, and Herzegovina. He's nominated to serve as Assistant Secretary of State 
for conflict and stabilization operations and coordinator for reconstruction and stabilization. Sounds like four jobs to me, Mr. Ambassador. Uh, Ambassador Robinson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member Kane. It's an honor to be here today. I first want to thank the President, the Secretary of State, and Undersecretary Sewell for the confidence they've placed in me. And I look forward, if confirmed, uh, to working with you and other members of this committee to advance the difficult but essential work of the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations. Uh, before I say anything else, I want to recognize and thank my wife, Donna, who is here today. She has been the rock of stability and grace uh, in an otherwise hectic Foreign Service life. So thank you, Donna. Uh, senators, uh, I have spent much of my 30 years as a Foreign Service officer, uh, nearly half of those as a member of the Senior Foreign Service in conflict zones or in other unstable environments from Afghanistan, Bosnia, and Central America to regions of Africa and Asia that have been scarred uh, by war. I know intimately the civilian costs of violent conflict, and I have worked extensively with other actors in the international arena to try to address those costs. Unfortunately, the cost in ruined lives and political instability continues to grow. The number of refugees and internally displaced persons worldwide is now nearly 60 million, more than at any other time since World War II, and no corner of the globe is immune. Even in areas in which the roots of representative civilian governance are beginning to take root, some 30 countries in Africa will have elections in the next two and a half years. Those expressions of democratic practice must be protected against efforts to undermine or delegitimize them through violent conflict. Repeating cycles of conflict sap our diplomatic, military, and development resources. There's no simple solution, including, as the President and the Secretary of State recently noted, a purely military response. Instead, we have to use all the tools at our disposal, including civilian, to anticipate, prevent, or limit conflict whenever and wherever we can. A focus on prevention is not only cost-effective, it also gives us the chance to find lasting political, political and social responses to these challenges. It gives us a chance to break the cycles of violence. Three and a half years ago, CSO was created to give the Secretary, the Department, and most importantly, our diplomatic missions overseas, the information and tools they need to more effectively address the threat of violent conflict. There have been notable successes. For example, CSO supporting interagency efforts to stem the tide of Al-Shabaab in the Horn of Africa and of Boko Haram in the Lake Chad Basin. It has helped prevent violence around elections in Kenya, Nigeria, and Bangladesh. And it has strengthened civilian security in some of the most dangerous parts of Central America. At the same time, I know well that CSO's mission and methodology have not always been clear and consistent. I read last year's hard-hitting Inspector General report and I take it seriously, as does the current leadership of CSO. Most of the recommendations already have been closed, and the few remaining are well on their way to successful conclusion. These changes reflect a maturing culture within the Bureau, and I welcome the chance to make it lasting and to better integrate the Bureau within the broader work of the Department. CSO has a talented and dedicated staff. What it needs now is seasoned leadership. If confirmed, I will work to make sure the Secretary and our diplomatic missions have reliable tools based on solid analysis and lessons learned to anticipate, prevent, and respond to conflict 
especially the worst forms of conflict directed at civilians, mass atrocities, and violent extremism. I will work to assure the accountability and effectiveness of our efforts through robust monitoring and evaluation and a sound management controls program. And I will strengthen our partnerships within the department, the interagency community, and among our allies. Finally, if confirmed, I assure you, I will lead a bureau that measurably strengthens American diplomacy in this critical arena. And I welcome your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador. <clears throat> Next, we have Mr. Nolan, who is nominated to serve as Ambassador to Suriname. Mr. Nolan currently serves as Minister Counselor for Political Affairs at the U.S. Embassy in Ottawa. Mr. Nolan. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member Kane. I appreciate this opportunity to appear before you today. I am honored to be President Obama's nominee to serve as the United States Ambassador to the Republic of Suriname. I thank the President for the confidence he has placed in me by putting me forward to the Senate for consideration, and I thank Secretary Kerry for his trust and support. I have had the honor to serve our country for 35 years as a Foreign Service Officer, and every day of those 35 years I have had the love and support of my wife, Tricia, who I'd like to introduce to the committee, along with my children, Ryan and Katie, of whom I'm immensely proud. I would not be here today without my wonderful family. During those 35 years, I have had the opportunity to contribute to some historic successes in US foreign policy. Among them, the first conventional arms control agreements with the Soviet Union in the 1980s, the successful integration of the Warsaw Pact members into NATO in the 1990s, and the indispensable US efforts to bring lasting peace to Northern Ireland through the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. I have also had the opportunity to lead large multi-agency missions as Deputy Chief of Mission in both Cyprus and the Netherlands, and then later as Chargé d'Affaires at Mission Netherlands from 2011 to 2013. I also gained experience on many Caribbean regional issues in that time as a result of the Netherlands' continued engagement with its Caribbean territories and its historic relationship with Suriname. If confirmed, I believe my leadership and policy experience will serve our mission and our team in Suriname well. If confirmed, I will proudly represent the United States in Suriname, a country whose people are among the most ethnically and religiously diverse in the world. Its citizens of African, Asian, European, and indigenous descent, practicing Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, and indigenous religions, live peacefully and productively together. As someone who has worked to build understanding between diverse religious and ethnic communities, from Protestants and Catholics in Ireland to Turkish and Greek Cypriots in Cyprus, I look forward to engaging with Suriname's communities to learn how they might be able to share their experiences with others in the region and around the world. If confirmed, I will also work with the Surinamese government to promote the adoption of policies to increase U.S. trade and investment. Increased trade has the potential to drive progress and growth in Suriname, and it is in the interests of both of our economies. We will work with Suriname to find solutions to tap into, as well as conserve the country's extensive natural resources. The people of Suriname also are heirs to a vast rainforest and other natural areas that are contributing great economic and environmental benefits to Suriname and the world. The Obama administration's efforts to combat the dangers posed by pollution and the risks of climate change are tied to the conservation and health of such ecosystems. If confirmed, I will work hard with the Surinamese to help protect these critical national resources and environment, a goal that I firmly believe is in the interest of both the United States and the people of Suriname. It is also in our interest to strengthen the, the rule of law in Suriname. In parliamentary elections this past May, 
President Desiree Baldrasse's party won a slim majority, and he has been re-elected to a second five-year term. International observers found this election to be generally free and fair. We remain concerned, however, about some aspects of democratic governance, corruption, and judicial independence. If I am granted the opportunity to serve, I will continue the efforts of my predecessor to press the government of Suriname for an independent judiciary capable of protecting and advancing democracy and the rule of law. Citizen security is another key goal of this administration in the region. The people of Suriname are under US sponsored, are benefiting from US sponsored programs, such as the Caribbean Basin Security Initiative. Through providing technical training to law enforcement officers, combating money laundering and financial crimes, and preparing at-risk youth for successful and crime-free lives. If confirmed, I will seek to gain an increased commitment from the government of Suriname to this partnership. Of course, my first priority would be the protecting and safety and welfare of Americans in Suriname, both private citizens and the embassy community. To ensure the safety and security of our staff in Suriname, we are building a new embassy compound in Paramaribo and plan to move in next summer. I will work with the government of Suriname along with local police and other security services to reinforce cooperation that will keep Americans secure. If confirmed, I look forward to representing the United States in Suriname, working with you and your colleagues in Congress on behalf of the administration, while also engaging Suriname in a regular and respectful dialogue on broad international issues to exchange views and, where possible, identify means of mutual interest and agreement. Mr. Chairman, I stand ready to answer any questions you may have. Thank you. Mr. Nolan, thank you. Next, we have uh, Mr. John Estrada. Uh, Mr. Estrada is nominated for Ambassador to Trinidad and Tobago. He currently serves as Senior Manager and Senior Program Project Manager at Lockheed Martin. Mr. Estrada. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Kane. Good afternoon. It is an honor to appear before you today. I want to express my gratitude to President Obama and Secretary Kerry for the trust and confidence they have placed in me through their renomination of me to represent my country as the next ambassador to the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago. I am particularly thrilled at the prospect of representing the United States, if confirmed, in the country of my birth. I was born in Trinidad and Tobago, and at the age of 14, I immigrated to the United States to forge a new life. I brought with me a respect for diversity and an inherent sense of the equal value of all people. I served with honor in the United States Marine Corps, attaining the Corps' highest enlisted rank as a 15th Sergeant Major in the history of the Marine Corps. After retiring from the Marine Corps, I continued serving my country as a presidential appointed commission member of the American Battle Monuments Commission and as a committee member on the Defense Advisory Committee for Women in the Services. In the private sector, I led Lockheed Martin Training Solutions Incorporated, a wholly owned subsidiary company specializing in flight training and logistic solutions. I firmly believe that one of the greatest aspirations of all free people is to live their lives to the fullest without limitations based on their ethnicity, class, race, gender, or sexual orientation. If confirmed as ambassador with that ideal as my guide, I would seek to strengthen the ties between the citizens and elected representatives of our two great nations. Trinidad and Tobago is an important Caribbean partner of the United States. The relationships between our countries rest on a strong foundation. We share a common language and a firm commitment to democratic principles, 
the rule of law, and a free market system. The United States mission to Trinidad and Tobago has three strategic objectives. On security, the mission first works to protect American citizens in Trinidad and Tobago. Related to the security of Americans, the embassy works with the government of Trinidad and Tobago to improve the capacity of Trinidadian law enforcement and justice sector institutions to reduce violent crime and illicit trafficking, safeguard human rights, and create safer communities. Second, the mission promotes increased commerce and transparent investment climates to enhance our mutual prosperity. Third, on social inclusion, the mission conducts extensive outreach and encourages regional leadership by Trinidad and Tobago to protect vulnerable populations, including at-risk youth. If confirmed, I look forward to leading our efforts in these crucial areas. United States and Caribbean partners have developed the Caribbean Basin Security Initiative, an ongoing multifaceted citizen security initiative for the Caribbean, of which Trinidad and Tobago is a key player. In creating the Caribbean Basin Security Initiative, the United States and Caribbean partners are attempting to combat the drug trade and other transnational crimes that threaten regional security with the goal of substantially reducing illicit trafficking, increasing public safety, and strengthening the rule of law and addressing the underlying social and economic roots causes of crime. I will do my utmost, if confirmed, to increase cooperation and encourage Trinidad and Tobago to take more of a leadership role in security in the Caribbean, where it has much to offer its neighbors. As a resource-rich country, Trinidad and Tobago is full of opportunity for energy companies. The United States works corporately with Trinidad and Tobago, both bilaterally and through the Caribbean Energy Security Initiative to develop new avenues for regional energy security and conservation. I'm excited. Trinidad and Tobago is playing a growing role in regional integration and promoting business relationship in the hemisphere. If confirmed, I would advocate on behalf of U.S. companies and commercial interests to assure a level playing field and support their engagements with Trinidad and Tobago. Education is the foundation for economic growth. If confirmed, I will work with the government of Trinidad and Tobago to explore ways in which we can provide at-risk youth and other vulnerable populations with tools that can help them succeed. I firmly believe that my 34 years of active duty service in the United States Marine Corps and my experience in the private sector, coupled with my personal history, have prepared me to represent the government and people of the United States to the government and people of Trinidad and Tobago. If confirmed, it would be my great honor to work closely with this committee and others in Congress to advance our shared objectives in the Caribbean. Thank you for allowing me the opportunity to appear before this distinguished committee. I look forward to answering your questions. Mr. Estrada, thank you very much. Uh, finally, we have Mr. Allen. Mr. Allen, who is currently a private investor and philanthropist. He's nominated to serve as the U.S. Executive Director to the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Mr. Allen. Thank you, Chairman Perdue and Ranking Member King. I am grateful for the opportunity to appear before you today. I am honored that President Obama has nominated me to serve as the U.S. Executive Director for the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. I would like to take this opportunity to introduce my family members that are here today. Betty Allen, my mother who is 91 years old. 
she's becoming a regular at confirmation hearings as she attended the hearing for my brother, Craig Allen, who was confirmed by this committee to serve as ambassador to Brunei in July 2014. My wife, Kanako, who has devoted her career to working on economic development issues, first at the United Nations and currently at the World Bank. She is my rock. Finally, our two daughters, Lisa, who has just returned from a couple of years in Kyoto, Japan, and Sarah, who works in finance in New York. I come from a very close family with a history of government service. My sister, Sarah Bowden, and her husband, Dennis Bowden, are also here today. During the Reagan administration, Sarah worked at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. Dennis spent nearly 30 years at the CIA. And prior to his confirmation to serve as the ambassador to Brunei, my brother, Craig Allen, spent a long career working at the Department of Commerce. Over the course of a 22-year career in investment banking, I became a specialist in emerging markets and credit. In the early 1980s, I was part of a small team of bankers focused on the sovereign reschedulings of commercial bank debt. My primary country of focus was the Philippines, but I also worked on distressed sovereigns in Latin America as well as Eastern Europe, specifically Yugoslavia. Through this work, I came to appreciate the trade-offs between balancing lenders' need to protect loan assets with the sovereign nation's desires to reduce pressure from debt service payments so that economic growth could improve their citizens' livelihoods and increase repayment probabilities. 30 years later, the players have changed, but many of these same dynamics continue to play out in Europe. I arrived in London in 1992 to lead Chemical Bank's emerging markets business. Just a couple of years earlier, during President George H.W. Bush's administration, the EBRD had been established, with the United States contributing 10% of the capital, the largest single country stake. The founding vision of the EBRD remained sound, fostering the economic vitality of the private sector through debt and equity capital to help countries effectively transition to market-oriented, pluralistic, and democratic societies. At the time, the context was a post-Soviet era, and EBRD's client countries were Eastern European countries that had just thrown off the yoke of communism. The EBRD today has new challenges. The EBRD has taken its founding vision into select countries in Northern Africa, Turkey, and Jordan with the same conviction that the development of an economically vibrant private sector will foster a political transition to democracy in these new client countries. At the same time, it is working to complete the transition of several more advanced Eastern European countries by aiming to reduce investments in these countries while recognizing that there is still a role for the EBRD given the effects of European economic turmoil and the Russian aggression in Ukraine. Over the medium term, however, these countries will need to follow the path of the Czech Republic, which has graduated from EBRD investments. EBRD's role in Ukraine deserves special mention. At the time of the unlawful annexation of Crimea, Ukraine was the second largest recipient of outstanding loans among EBRD countries of operation. Today, virtually all commercial and private sources of fresh capital are reluctant to invest in Ukraine as lenders and investors judge the risk as too extreme, absent broader signals of support for Ukraine. The EBRD, true to its mission, continues to provide that signal and to make new lending available to private sector entities and the government. For calendar year 2015, the EBRD expects to make an additional $1.25 billion in new cash disbursements. 
If confirmed, I will seek to encourage the EBRD to continue to provide new financing to Ukraine entities on a prudent basis. My long involvement in emerging markets and portfolio management provides me with a deep, a deep understanding of credit and event risk. I also ran sales teams from London that covered institutional investors in Eastern Europe, Russia, Turkey, and the Middle East, many of the same countries where the EBRD is most active. If confirmed, I would like to focus on how the EBRD can most effectively support our allies in the region while balancing the financial risks that entails. My background and experience provides me with the skill set to ask the right questions and to understand the answers. Thank you again for considering my nomination, and I look forward to answering any questions you may have. Thank you all very much. Um, we'll move to, now we'll move to questions. And uh, I, I, we'll do it in reverse order, but I'm gonna ask one question just to get it started of each of you, and it's the same question, so, um, but, but it'll be different, your, your different posts. I'd, I'd like to know as you look at, a lot of times when we have these questions, we talk about the historical record and what you've done to get here. Um, I accept the fact that each of you have stellar careers. It's obvious from reading your, your backgrounds. So I'd like to know, for the record, how you see your next post, what, what those responsibilities would entail. So specifically, I'd like to see what you think um, your priorities might be as, as you look at this new responsibility and what the challenges that you anticipate might be as well. So uh, Mr. Allen, you're warmed up, so we'll, we'll start with you, uh, and then we'll go in reverse order. Thank you. Thank you for the question, thank you. If confirmed, uh, I would like to think that my long experience in managing risk and understanding risk would help the EBRD manage its portfolio. Uh, clearly, working in emerging markets and, and sovereigns um, is uh, full of credit risk and event risk that uh, need to be understood and prudent measures taken to mitigate the risk wherever possible. In the case of Ukraine, there was a huge event risk, and uh, it is noteworthy that the EBRD has managed its risk prudently and is continuing to lend to Ukraine, thereby uh, aligning its, our interests in Ukraine with the EBRD. So the management of risk is an area that I'd like to focus on while at the EBRD, if confirmed. Thank you. Mr. Estrada. If confirmed, my priorities, I have three priorities as I see it. The first one, first and foremost, is the protection of U.S. citizens traveling, uh, visiting, and working in the country of Trinidad and Tobago. My second priority would be continuing efforts to strengthen the, the law enforcement capacity of the Trinidadian uh, law enforcement and also improving the justice sector system so they could deal with the crime uh, and, and drug uh, issues that they currently face. And my third priority would also be, would focus on uh, improving uh, the climate in Trinidad and Tobago and throughout the Caribbean region uh, for a fair and open, transparent uh, uh, trade, uh, trade market system. What challenges do you think you'll have in uh, trying to achieve those three objectives? The, the, 
the first challenge, uh, protection of U.S. citizens, uh, Trinidad and Tobago is struggling. They're challenged by high crime and uh, is to ensure that we educate Americans visiting the country, uh, those that are living in the country, uh, that we continue to educate them on, 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 on safe, safe areas, where not to go and where to come for assistance so that we continue to, to reach out to them. That would be my first challenge, that we are, t we are touching every American that's in the country. That would be my uh, biggest challenge. As far as um, strengthening uh, the, the, the capacity of Trinidad, uh, Trinidad law enforcement and justice sector systems, the, the, the country continues to struggle because of the narcotic, illegal no narcotic trade. They continue to struggle with uh, uh, corruption, uh, in, in some areas, and uh, uh, they need to strengthen their borders. Uh, uh, they have very open sea lanes, so they, they, the, the challenge would be to get them to move a little bit more quickly mm -hmm. on, on uh, addressing those, those areas of concerns. Great. Thank you. Mr. Nolan? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, like Mr. Estrada, my number one goal would be the safety and security of both official and non-official Americans in, in Suriname. And uh, the challenge we face there is continuing to professionalize the police uh, and the, the military institutions in the government uh, and education and uh, democratic control of the military and uh, a full range of, of law enforcement programs uh, that would improve their performance. The problem in Suriname is not directly terrorism at the moment, even though that obviously can change anywhere at any, at any time, it is crime. Uh, and so that makes it very important to work with the police. And I think that leads into the second goal I would have, which is uh, the complex of issues under citizen security, democratic governance, and the rule of law. If we can work with the Surinamese to strengthen their institutions there, it's not only a benefit in and of itself, but it will help us deal with some of our other concerns there, which are issues such as transshipment of drugs, uh, trafficking in persons. Uh, these are these are some of the issues that we want to get at with the with the Surinamese, and I hope to do so if if confirmed. My third area would be to facilitate economic growth and development in Suriname. Uh, a couple of the uh, main reasons there being. Uh, one, we have some significant U.S. investment in Suriname, including uh, uh, a very recent billion-dollar investment by a U.S. mining company in gold mining uh, in Suriname, uh, and also because we want to move the Surinamese to a more sustainable, environmentally sensitive development uh, pattern. Uh, the, their rainforest is one of the, uh, uh, the world's ecological treasures, uh, and uh, I think what we can do to make sure that they develop both for the benefit of the Surinamese people, for U.S. investors, but also to, to preserve that, that environment to the extent possible will be very important. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Ambassador? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Chairman, CSO is a, a young bureau that faces a complex and global challenge. And since its inception, it has undergone a period of dynamic uh, learning as it adjusts to that challenge and as it seeks to assure its place in the interagency community. What I can say is it has an extraordinarily dedicated and talented staff. So my goal, my priority, is to provide the kind of disciplined leadership that seizes that staff, directs its attentions, its talents, and its dedication to getting its job done and knitting that skill into the main fabric uh, of the State Department so that it delivers 
what it is designed to deliver in a way that is not only recognized as useful for the State Department and for the interagency community, but is essential as it faces the challenge of violent conflict. Thank you. Ms. calabrese Bar. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I look really forward to taking, uh, assuming this role if confirmed, and I believe my 32 years in the accountability community positions me well. While I'm not at the agency currently, I think I know how to get this, this job done. So a couple of things that I would want to begin with. Uh, it's about learning the agency, and it sounds very simplistic, but it's a rule that I always followed. Mm. Um, I would want to get a sense of um, the work, the processes, and the people. What's working well, what isn't working well. And that means I need to be in the listening mode. That, needs, that means that I need to engage with our staff. I have to look at what sets our priorities. And the most important thing is to make sure that we have processes in place that yield work that is quality, that is reflective of the standards, and that is transparent to Congress and to the American um, public. I would certainly want to reach out to members of this committee to understand what your interests are, legislative interests, priorities for the upcoming uh, year, so that I can understand how our work best can meet those needs. In addition, I would want to coordinate with the AID administrator to understand what what the, that individual believes is some of the greatest challenges and vulnerabilities. And at the end of the day, and I think a couple of my um, uh, panel members here mentioned too, uh, people are your greatest asset in an organization. And if you invest in them, and you invest in their development, and you're a good leader that marshals and doesn't direct, it's amazing what you can get done, and the mission can be very, very well served. So that, that would be how I would approach it. Thank you. We'll move on to the ranking member, Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks to all of you. Um, Ms. Barr, I wanted to ask you a question. I, I recognize you're not at AID now, so this is more of how you would approach this. In the October 14 OIG audit of USAID and USAID's compliance with the FISMA, the, the um, Financial Information Security Management Act, the audit had a conclusion. USAID does not comply with FISMA, although the agency has developed and documented the majority of the information security policies and procedures required under the Act, USAID has not established an effective risk management program to ensure that policies and procedures are assessed and working as intended. Consequently, the audit found a number of information system weaknesses that, if exploited, could adversely affect the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of USAID's data and information systems, and ultimately could have a negative impact on the agency's ability to protect the security of its information and information systems. This is the kind of warning I'm sure is not unique to USAID, and we're dealing here with the challenge of the OPM data breach. How, how would you, in the position, uh, kind of approach that kind of a recommendation uh, in terms of trying to get USAID to, to, to uh, have, uh, comply more with the, the FISMA requirements as described? Thank you for the question, Ranking Member Kane. Um, FISMA is a very, very important uh, uh, program and uh, uh, policy that we need to be very, very closely attuned to. And I would say in IT systems, the security posture of any IT system has to be absolutely, absolutely secure. So um, conducting work, audits that reveal where there are weaknesses or vulnerabilities, uh, in those IT systems, it's important to point out what those vulnerabilities are from an agency-wide perspective, and in the case of AID, maybe to try to even drill down, uh, as we did in the case of DOT, not just provide sort of the scorecard on the state of its security posture across the agency, but 
a scorecard by, in, in the case of DOT, modal administration. So what I would like to do is take a look at that report. I'd like to see what the recommendations are. I'd like to see the status of those recommendations, the extent to which they are followed up. We will continue with our, our required work uh, in the FISMA area, and we would make sure that that system, as well as any other systems, have to be about protecting the integrity um, of, of data, and FISMA speaks to the heart of the integrity uh, of data. So you would have my full commitment to keep a close eye on that. Here's a question that's really more about philosophically the role of an IG, as I'm you know, kind of new on the committee still too, at two and a half years, and I'm really learning mm -hmm. the job. There was a controversy within USAID about a previous acting director and a suggestion that this acting director between 2011 and 13 was removing from public audit reports recommendations or challenging comments and putting them in private letters to management instead. And some in the agency basically said that, you know, that was motivated to try to make him or others look better than they were. Talk a little bit about, you know, kind of from an IG perspective. I mean, I'm assuming sometimes you come up with recommendations and you do share, some you might share confidentially or in a, in a prefatory way or a preliminary way to try to get people to make improvements and then some you, you know, you make public so that the world will know. How, how as an IG do you kind of handle that uh, as you're analyzing the performance of this agency that you are independently charged with overseeing? Yeah, certainly I'm aware of the concerns that uh, you, you mentioned and uh, aware of them but not don't know the key facts um, surrounding them, so I don't want to speculate mm -hmm. actually on any of, any of the particulars. But to your, to your larger question is what is the appropriate role of the IG and, and concern uh, for those matters, and it goes back to uh, my role of ensuring that we have absolutely airtight processes that um, ensure that our work is evidence-based, that it is of quality, that it's free from any type of outside influence. And the process has to include a good vetting, verification of the data, quality control checks of the data in-house before it is publicly um, publicly released. So I want to take a really good look at the process that was used there that perhaps prompted maybe some weaknesses in that, that process that prompted some of these questions and make sure that we go ahead and, um, and fix any of that. At the end of the day, the most important thing is transparency of our work products. There should be no hidden findings anywhere. There shouldn't be reports that are banished to management letters that never see the light of day. So you have my commitment that all of our work will be posted publicly upon final uh, publication of the work. Thank you very much, Ms. Barr. And to, now to you, Mr. Robinson. Um, quite two questions. I would, I'd like to ask you about Honduras, and I'd like to ask you about Syria. So, uh, and this, the CSO uh, work that is being done, I know there is work being done in Honduras because of the serious um, violence problem there. Honduras has been a good U.S. ally, but this is a, a, a very, very challenging area. We're in the Northern Triangle. You've got, you know, the highest murder rates in the world, three of the five highest murder rates in the world in those countries. The president has proposed a significant investment in a plan in Central America to help them deal with the security situation. What, what is the CSO currently doing, or what might it do if Congress sees fit to appropriate significant funds to this initiative to help Honduras and the other countries in the Northern Triangle uh, deal with the violence issues? I ask because I lived there 35 years ago and I have a particular and personal interest in it. Thank you, Senator. Under the President's proposal, CSO would, in the first instance, uh, design and then manage the uh, monitoring and evaluation function to make sure that the proposal, that the, the programs that are implemented in Honduras or in, the, in Central America 
are in fact working as intended. As part of the monitoring evaluation program, CSO has a commitment to developing the lessons learned that it then transfers to future planning and programs. So it's a, a feedback loop that we would continue to refine the program in an intergovernmental fashion to get the best use out of it. On the particulars of Honduras itself, CSO uh, launched a program in conjunction with USAID um, to do two things. First, to address the tremendous violence that made Honduras at that time, from 2012 to 14, when the program was running, uh, the murder capital of the world, and also to prepare to limit the damaging impact that violence would have on elections uh, in Honduras. So working with local uh, NGOs, local civil society organizations, and with our USAID partners, CSO launched uh, a, a program in Honduras to bring together civil society officials and police to create uh, early warning systems, uh, to create fast response systems, allowing community leaders to intervene where violence uh, would be uh, or was beginning to uh, become even more problematic. In addition, working in the justice sector, it put pressure through these uh, civil society groups and through these NGOs on the government and on particularly the attorneys general uh, to perform their jobs. The result was astounding. The number of convictions increased enormously where CSO had been working with the attorneys general. CSO has turned that program over as it was intended to do, has transitioned it to local implementers, to local partners in the field, and it continues to run today. So the program is still effective, it's still functioning, and it will expand. Uh, CSO continues to support that, the embassy supports it as well, and INL also supports that program. So it's a good example of the interagency aspect of CSO's work. On elections violence, CSO identified the hotspots that were likely to erupt. It created, uh, again with local implementers, the civil society groups that could respond uh, to the kind of political dialogue that was provoking uh, electoral violence. It mapped out the major actors, both pro and con, and uh, gave those, of course, to the embassy, to the ambassador. The ambassador made phone calls uh, to those uh, actors, uh, and in fact, the elections did uh, occur without the eruptions of violence that were anticipated in those areas. Following the elections, which is also a critical period uh, to monitor violence, of course, the ambassador actually visited those areas and talked to those people. The result was uh, an extraordinarily strengthened regime of civil society action uh, to take responsibility for the street violence that otherwise uh, may have impeded the elections, and that again continues today. At the end of the day, one of the benefits of the CSO action was to turn over to the embassy, to turn over to our diplomatic uh, mission, a new network of actors that can directly address the kind of violence that has disrupted Honduras. Um, it is a very important issue, and not just because I lived there. I'm not asking it just for that reason. Obviously, the huge upturn in the unaccompanied minors coming to the southern border of the United States, heavily from Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, driven by violence issues. So smart investments and smart CSO participation in anti-violence strategies uh, will have a direct benefit uh, to the U.S. as well. We're close partners. The issue about Syria, I recently did a CODEL to Syria, and I met with individuals connected with the START team. Uh, under the leadership of Mark Ward. I know that a lot of the work of the CSO as, this, as a new bureau initially 
was done uh, dealing with the Syrian refugee crisis, but I understand that that work has now been moved primarily from the CSO division within state over to the uh, NEA division within state. Could you just describe uh, why that is? I know there's been sort of efforts to define what the CSO mission is within state, but I'm curious as to the reason for that transfer. Yes, Senator, um, most CSO programs are designed to transition to a more sustainable platform. The purpose of CSO is to be agile, is to go in and to uh, seek innovative, if that's what's required, or creative responses to problems, to fill in gaps that can't be filled in, but not to substitute uh, for capacity that can be found in country. The CSO is not designed to remain in a place to be the operator for extended periods of time. As I mentioned in the Honduras example, CSO successfully transitioned its programs to local implementers. Obviously, Syria is a different story. Uh, the local implementers are not quite available to us at this point. Consequently, CSO did transition its programs uh, to the NEA Bureau. That transition is now complete. That said, CSO remains engaged um, in particularly staffing General Allen's office in the counter-ISIL work and on the Liberated Areas Working Group. And we have a broad cadre of personnel in CSO with great experience in that part of the world. So we remain deeply engaged in the planning efforts, but not in the actual implementation efforts at this point. Mr. Chair, could I continue with questions for the other witnesses? Absolutely. I'm, I've gone over my time, but uh, no, you're, you're in good the, the, these are important. Um, important positions. I, I'd actually like to ask you, Mr. Nolan and Mr. Estrada, kind of the same question in the, for Suriname and Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, you both mentioned public safety and security issues. You know, we still continue to see major drug activity, drug transit from South America to uh, often through Central America, through Honduras, as we're just describing, to the United States. General Kelly has testified often before the Armed Services Committee where I serve and is and has just basically said in the SOCOM domain, uh, the resources for interdiction are just not what he would hope. He says, I watch 75% of drugs come to the United States just go right by me. Um, and uh, he was you know, talking an anti-sequester message, but certainly he's also talking about cooperation between the US military and the SOCOM space and, uh, and other US partners, uh, state and others, as well as the militaries of the nations that we're dealing with. Talk a little bit about um, in Suriname and then in Trinidad Tobago, the current status of sort of mill-to-mill -mill relationships, um, uh, what you might do uh, in your ambassadorial post to help uh, basically with this interdiction effort. Uh, Mr. Strada, you talked about the sea lanes need to be better controlled to, to help this issue in Trinidad Tobago. The U.S. can play a role in that. Talk a little bit about uh, our military cooperation with each of your nations. Mr. Nolan first. Uh, thank you, Senator. Certainly an important question. In, in Suriname, Suriname is not a, a, a drug-producing country, but it is a major transshipment country. Uh, no drug transshipments are good. These, they do tend not to come to the U.S. from Suriname. They're largely going to, uh, to Africa and to Europe, uh, but that doesn't mean we don't need to take action against them. A large problem that we have with Suriname is, uh, even with the best of cooperation from the military, if we, if we had that, it is just a, a very large and very unpopulated and, uh, mm -hmm. and difficult space to know what's, what's moving through uh, the country. So what we have tried to do with our programs, uh, uh, both through Southcom, through, we have a partnership program with South Dakota National Guard and the Surinamese military, uh, and uh, with INL programming, is uh, train the trainers on, on how, to, uh, how to improve their ability to, uh, to deal with controlling that space, 
provide some additional riverine capacity uh, because there, a lot of the drug uh, flow does move along rivers uh, once it gets into the country. Uh, to, to be honest, in the in the pre-election period we had, we just had an election in Suriname in, in May. Uh, in the uh, months before that, we were not getting tremendous cooperation uh, from the government, and uh, a lot of the programs had had stepped back a bit. Even though training is uh, training programs are still continuing. With uh, the new government, uh, we do have the same president, but I always take the opportunity of a new government to. Uh, we'll have some new ministers and to, and to try again to engage them uh, more fully. We, we think there are a lot, of, uh, a lot of good people in the Surinamese military uh, who really want to cooperate, and we need to get, uh, I will try, uh, if I am confirmed there, to get, uh, to get more central buy-in so they get the resources uh, and support they need to take advantage of the programs that we can offer, uh, both through uh, INL funding and Southcom. Great. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Mr. General. Mr. Estrada, the Southcom question. Thank you, Senator King. The, the United States has instituted a comprehensive interagency anti-crime and counter-narcotic strategy aimed at assisting our Trinidad and Tobago law enforcement agencies to detect and interdict narcotics and to develop the skills to manage the evidence needed to prosecute those crimes. And uh, agencies that are playing a part in this effort are the Drug Enforcement Agency, uh, which works to help disrupt the flow of narcotics in the United States. This has, in fact, resulted in the seizures of large quantities of cocaine and uh, marijuana. There's still a lot of work to be done, uh, working with all the different uh, agencies, and you mentioned SOTCOM, and if confirmed as the U.S. Ambassador Trinidad and Tobago, I will focus on those areas as, 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 a, as an area of concern for the government of Trinidad and Tobago. They realize they're challenged in this area, and I will do everything I can to help them address that issue. That, thank you, Mr. Stroud. And finally, Mr. Allen, uh, a lot of the uh, um, work that's been done by the EBRD initially has been with firms in Russia. So I, I kind of was going to ask about, as you come into this post, how has the, the Russian dynamic with Ukraine and other European nations, how is that likely to change the arc and trajectory of the EBRD work, and I was going to basically ask the same question about how will the arc of EBRD work change as a result of the challenges we've been seeing in Greece. You mentioned that you have developed, you know, your appreciation through earlier work about this balance for trying to protect lenders' interests, but also protect the interests of the government that wants to be able to grow and not just, you know, spend all their resources repaying debt. My, my layman's read of, the, of a lot of the recent Greek deal is, you know, we're lending them more money so that they can pay off bad debts, but without necessarily being able to use that money to be able to grow the economy. So you don't have to editorialize on that, but I'm just kind of curious how the EBRD mission might address the Russia-Ukraine, the Russia challenge, and how it would address the current challenges posed by the Greek situation. Thank you very much for um, both questions, Senator. Um, let's start with Greece. Um, it, everyone wants to help Greece. Uh, the EBRD, the United States, the Eurozone wants to help Greece. Um, EBRD is fortunate that it wasn't lending to Greece, so it has zero exposure. Mm -hmm. um, the Greek government requested the EBRD to start evaluating projects earlier this year. Clearly, there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of event risk, a lot of, a lot of economic uh, turmoil in Greece. Um, going forward, some of that uncertainty needs to be alleviated before, in my opinion, the 
the uh, EBRD should start lending any money in Greece. Um, in any event, uh, my understanding is that any new finan any financings in Greece will be short term and very targeted towards the private sector, mm -hmm. not with the government. In the case of Russia, um, a bit of history, if I may, please. Um, the EBRD was set up in 1990. Um, at that time, the Soviet Union was disintegrating. Uh, so uh, the EBRD looked, and the US administration at the time, looked at the EBRD as a way to uh, start developing the private sector. Um, there were trade missions under Presidents Clinton and uh, George W. Bush uh, trying to do the same thing mm -hmm. by engaging with the private sector to, to increase the dynamics in an economy and through those dynamics to help prompt um, a political transition. Uh, again, uh, historic, from a histor historic perspective, when President Medvedev took over, there was a lot of in optimism mm -hmm. that this could happen. Yeah. I mean, President Medvedev talked about establishing technology hubs. The EBRD, in fact, I started to increase its lending around that same time. The U.S. was very much wanting to engage with Russian uh, uh, and to see um, the development of a private sector, which hopefully would lead to more of a pluralistic democracy. The second coming of Vladimir Putin threw that um, um, optimism uh, into a tailspin. The EBRD was caught with a lot of Russian loans. There's no doubt about that. Um, Pre-Crimea, uh, Russian uh, exposure of the EBRD versus Russian exposure now, they have worked very hard to reduce that risk. So it's been reduced by 25 to 30%. That's the step in the right direction. And would that be from like about 30% down to low 20s or what no, is No, the Russian share of the EBRD um, portfolio was around 21%. Okay. Now it's around um, a little less than 14%. Uh, so the mitigation of Russian risk is happening. A lot of it, uh, uh, is the roll-off of trade finance. Mm -hmm. But clearly, there is no new business being done in Russia. Um, the G7 is met, you know, basically told the EBRD not to start any new business uh, whatsoever post-Crimea. Um, the EBRD is still engaged with, obviously, its Russian counterparties in order to be able to ensure the timely payment, repayment of loans but it is not uh, making any new payments, and it is mitigating and, and, and trying to reduce the overall risk. One follow-up, and I'm done. How about in Ukraine? Yeah, Ukraine, um, it was the second largest borrower from the EBRD. Um, U.S. interests are, are right along with the EBRD's interest. It, it is a strategic priority for the EBRD and for the United States to continue to finance new business in Ukraine. Uh, the EBRD um, took some losses, um, but it is the commitment, I think, is seen in the, in the fact that it is raising uh, $1.25 in new transactions in Ukraine 
for 2015. At this point in time, it's pretty safe to say that uh, the EBRD is probably the only, if not you know, one of a, a couple of lenders willing to put fresh capital in Ukraine. The event risks are enormous. The economy is uh, under a lot of stress. And it is, um, you know, if confirmed, I would encourage the EBRD to continue this course of providing new financings to the private sector as well as uh, in the oil and gas uh, sector with, uh, with the government and, um, you know, to continue to support Ukraine, which is aligned with our interests. Very informative answers, all of you. Thank you very much. Uh, that's fascinating. I, I do want to follow up on one thing, Mr. Allen. Uh, with regard to the Russian exposure to the IBRD, what, how does that burn off? I mean, what's the, what's the duration of most of that uh, risk? Thank you very much for the question, sir. Uh, I've not been at the EBRD, so right. I don't know in detail. Um, I, I suspect that some of it is trade finance because they work very well with banks, um, and so some of it will be trade finance. Um, I don't know what the duration of their portfolio was, is um, and whether or not loans that came due were paid. That might have been some of the reduction in overall exposures. Um, whether or not there's been any disposals or sale of loan or equity stakes, I, I cannot comment on because I don't know. Um, but it's an interesting question and uh, clearly uh, the, the, the reduction in risk is good. And, it needs to be accelerated whenever possible. If you're confirmed, I'll, um, I'll seek you out. I, really, I, really I look would, forward to I that, I'd like sir. to know more about I look that. Forward I know to Senator Kane and I talked about much. that. Well, look, thank you all very much for your testimony and your thoughtful responses. Uh, it's encouraging to see talent like you uh, being willing to um, step up and do what you're about to do and what you already have done, most of you. Um, do you have anything else, Senator? Uh, well, that'll be the end of our, our questioning today. Uh, the record will remain open, however, until close of business Thursday for members who wish to submit questions to the record. Uh, and with that, uh, this hearing is adjourned. Thank you very much.